Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. He starts at the beginning of chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He'll use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thank God. Father, we give you thanks for your word to us. We give you thanks for Paul, for all that he did, for all that he wrote, the example he gave. And I pray now you would speak to us through these words this morning. In the name of Jesus and the power of your spirit. Amen. It's not very encouraging when you come across things like this when you are doing your reading and research for a sermon. 
2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12 is in fact one of the most challenging chapters in all Paul's letters, so you may need to invest a little more time in studying this section. Another commentary is even less encouraging. This passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings, and the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculations. Why is it so difficult? Well, first it deals partly with the end times. Such passages are notoriously hard to understand, wherever they come up in the Bible. Some of the more famous ones would be the second half of Daniel, with all those beasts coming out of the sea, Mark 13, part of our reading today, and of course the book of Revelation. They're known as apocalyptic writings. They aren't necessarily about the end times, but they lift the veil, that's what that word means, on hidden truths. Second, Paul was not giving the full picture in these words in this letter. He says in verse 5, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And then in verse 6, And now you know what is holding him back. Well, great for them because they were there, but we weren't. I, I don't know. Why don't you tell us, Paul? Presumably, this would have made a lot more sense to them because they were there for his teaching when he was there in person uh, a few months earlier. Third, the Bible always gives us the answer we need, which is not always the answer that we want. We want to understand, we want to know why, especially when bad or difficult things happen, that the persecutions and trials that we thought about last week. This passage is a case in point. Paul doesn't explain why all this will happen, But the clearest part of the whole passage is who will be victorious, Jesus. We come to the Bible with all our questions. Some are answered directly, but all are answered in Jesus. Come to him, the Bible says, be forgiven, receive new life, and learn to live as he lived. So let's dive in and see how Paul, he's really quite concerned for his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. What do you think the most important thing is in a marina? The most important thing in a marina is the mooring rope. The mooring ropes need to be strong and secure. Otherwise, the next time a storm comes along, those boats will drift away and be damaged or even destroyed. When Paul tells the Thessalonians not to be easily unsettled in verse 2, that word is actually the word used to describe a ship that is coming loose from its moorings. That's what the word means. It's particularly by the pressure of a storm. And the other word alarmed is is a sort of present tense word suggesting a, a, a constant state of anxiety. Now, I don't know whether the Thessalonians wore underwear, but their knickers were certainly in a twist. (laughs) What? (laughs) Got some very funny looks from Bobby and Pat just then, from opposite ends of the room. (laughs) What were they in such a flap about? They were worried, verse 1, about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. And verse 2, they were worried that the day of the Lord has already come. It seems that some false teachers were spreading rumors, perhaps even falsifying a letter claiming to be from Paul, saying that Jesus had already come and that they'd missed it. Seems a bit ridiculous, really, to, to think that. 
we know from 1 Thessalonians that Paul's teaching in this area mirrored Jesus' own teaching, some of which we had in Mark 13. Verse 24, In those days, Jesus said, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in clouds with great power and glory. How can anyone miss that? The stars will fall from the sky. When Jesus returns, it will be a huge, cosmic, earth-shaking event, totally unmissable and, in a sense, terrifying. The purpose of Jesus' teaching, though, and Paul's as well, was not to worry people, but precisely the opposite. Jesus said, Mark 13, verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Why? Verse 8, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. That is the point of all apocalyptic writings in the Bible, to reassure people facing persecutions and trials that God does rule and he will sort it all out one day. The Thessalonians' mooring rope was coming loose. The false teaching was pulling them away from the truth. It was undoing that knot. And they were growing anxious and afraid. Paul's aim was to tighten that rope, to remind them of the truth, so that they could, in verse 15 of our reading, stand firm. The exact opposite of being easily unsettled. Now, during the first lockdown, our neighbor was in the middle of building a couple of bungalows. He bought the house next door and then converted both gardens into bungalows. And at one point, they needed to close the road. So they put one of these up outside our vicarage. Road ahead closed by the junction just, uh, just by our house. And I cannot tell you the number of people who drove round it and then found that, surprise, surprise, the road ahead was closed. <laughs> Humans are very good at ignoring things. Now, one evening, I actually went out and put the sign in the middle of the road, because so many people were ignoring it, and a van literally mounted the pavement to drive round it. And then, of course, he had to mount the pavement again when he got to the place where the road ahead was closed. Verse 3 in our reading is where things start to get a bit tricky. Paul describes a rebellion. In fact, he describes the rebellion. Global rejection of God a full-scale war against him, led by Satan and his minions. We read about some of that in Revelation chapter 19. This rebellion will be led by this guy that we come across in this passage, the man of lawlessness. Sounds like a rightly lovely guy, doesn't he? The man of lawlessness in Revelation, called the beast. In John's letters, called the Antichrist. In Mark, Daniel, and Matthew, the abomination that causes desolation. It's a fun phrase, isn't it? I think they're all describing the same person. The Bible Project calls them the rebel. He will, verse 4, oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. At the heart of this greatest and final rebellion will be a leader who not only opposes God but sets himself up in God's place as the object of worship. Now, over the centuries, Christians have agonized over who this person is. Various people have been identified as the leader, from people like 
Hitler and Stalin to the Pope. John Wesley was once described as the Antichrist by someone. And in the 2nd century BC, the king of Syria was a man named Antiochus IV. And Israel was part of his kingdom. He was pretty unpleasant. He believed that he was an incarnation of the god Zeus. And so he took the name Epiphanes, meaning appearance. On his coins, he literally called himself God. He banned worship in Jerusalem and set up a statue of Zeus, i.e. a statue of himself, over the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Let's read verse 4 again. The man of lawlessness will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Seems pretty obvious that the man of lawlessness was Antiochus IV. Except Paul seems to be talking about the future, whereas Antiochus had lived 200 years before. He was dead and buried. What's going on? Well, first, the man of lawlessness, the rebel, he has not come yet. To lead that full-scale rebellion and war, that has not happened. Verse 6, you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. He's not come yet. This is where things get really tricky. Something or someone is holding this guy back, the rebel, the, the, the abomination of desolation. What on earth is Paul talking about? Some have suggested maybe God is holding him back. That doesn't seem to make sense to me because then it says about when he's removed, the lawless one will be revealed and God's not going to be removed. Others think it might be the devil. Others think an angel like Michael. Some even the Roman Empire. When the church father, St. Augustine, wrote about this in the 5th century, he declared this, I frankly confess I do not know what he means. (laughs) It's good, isn't it? My best guess... I think Paul could have been talking about the preaching of the gospel and those who do that, including himself and then us as well. In Mark 13, Jesus says, Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. Remember, Paul was teaching the Thessalonians and reminding them of what must happen first, before Jesus returns, to reassure them. These things haven't happened yet, so the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. And by the way, you really won't miss it when it does. While the gospel is being preached around the world in the power of the Holy Spirit, the lawless one is being restrained. But when that task is completed, then the restraint will be lifted, much like the chocks being taken away from an aeroplane, and the rebel will be revealed. I don't know, that's my theory. But that's also the first reason why Antiochus and the others are not the man of lawlessness. Why does the description seem to fit their behavior so well? This is a diagram of the Hubble Space Telescope. The actual image of of what we see is focused and reflected on various mirrors and lenses through the telescope all the way to the sensor at the other end, so we can see things that are far away. Look with me at verse 7. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work. The power or the pattern of lawlessness can be seen again and again through history. Like the mirrors and lenses in a telescope reflecting the original image again and again. 
Rebellion against God is writ large in rulers like Antiochus. But it's also visible in smaller ways in all women and men through history. In our stubborn pride, our refusal to listen to God or live his way, or worship him alone, or give him the thanks and praise he is due. Rebellion is in all our hearts. So those images and reflections of rebellion will continue to a greater or lesser extent until the rebellion, when, verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed. And how does that go for him? Verse 8 carries on, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with a mighty army, a host of angels, all his people coming together in battle with the breath of his mouth. With the breath of his mouth. All this rebellion, this sound and fury and power and signs and wonders, the Lord Jesus will overthrow it all with the breath of his mouth. Friends, this is Paul's main point in this passage. To win the victory, all Jesus needs to do is arrive in his splendor and glory and breathe. In Mark 13, verse 5, Jesus said, Watch out that no one deceives you. In verse 3 of our reading, Paul says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. This day has not come yet. You can't possibly miss it when it does. And when it does, Jesus won't even have to fight to win the victory because it is already won. The Lamb has won it on the cross. In all the confusion and argument about what Paul means or doesn't mean in this most challenging of passages, one thing is certain, the Lamb wins. Alleluia. One Sunday, a minister told his congregation, Over the next few days, I'd all like you to read Luke 25 as preparation for our sermon next week. The following week, he began and he asked, last week, I asked you all to read Luke 25 before this service. And just in a show of hands, I'd like to know who who managed to read it. And of course, they all put their hands up. Smiling, he said, well, the thing is, Luke only has 24 chapters. My topic today is the sin of lying. (laughs) Paul says, the coming of the lawless lawn. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. Jesus said in John chapter 8, when the devil lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan the liar is the power behind the rebel's throne. So in these next verses, Paul teaches that the final rebellion, and in fact all rebellion against God is built on lies and deception. Friends, it is easy to be deceived. The Thessalonians were being deceived, and they had the Apostle Paul as their teacher. Jesus has won the victory, but until his return, the devil still has power and influence. And his main way of operating is to deceive with false teaching, with half-truths without-and-out lies that have the appearance of truth. Even, verse 9, signs and wonders that serve the lie. Displays of real power. 
Now, Paul isn't interested in listing what those lies might be, apart from this one about Jesus coming. But he does want to warn us about the consequences. Yet again, these are difficult verses to understand. Verse 11, for this reason, God sends them, that is those who refuse to love the truth, a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. What's going on here? I find the way the message puts it helps here. Since they're so obsessed with evil, God rubs their noses in it and gives them what they want. Since they refuse to trust truth, they're banished to their chosen world of lies and illusions. God gives them what they have asked for. In a world of social media and fake news, the question of truth and lies has perhaps never been so critical. We need to listen to Paul's warnings, to recognize that this is how the devil works, so we can stand firm and hold fast to the truth. And then not only hold on to the truth, but share it. Paul ends this section with thankfulness. Again, he's always saying thank you, this guy. He can't help himself. He says, we ought always, verse 13, to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, because they are loved by the Lord. God chose them as first fruits, the first of many. They are saved through the work of the Spirit, making them holy, and through their belief in the truth. And he called them to this through the gospel, so that they might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 13 and 14. Paul is thankful. And all of that was true of them, and it's true of us today. We are loved, chosen, saved, and called by God And we will share in the glory of our Lord Jesus if we stand firm. Paul wanted to make sure the Thessalonians knew the truth of who they are in Jesus and who will win in the end. The Lamb wins. He told them all this in his first letter. In fact, you may recognize all those words from previous sermons in this series. In this letter, he had to remind them because they were wobbling. I wonder how often we wobble and need reminding of the truth. Remember this, the mooring rope. By focusing and reminding them of the truth, Paul was making sure that their mooring rope was nice and tight to keep them safe and secure, to stop them drifting away. Brothers and sisters, he says, verse 15, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Friends, this is so important. It's no coincidence that so much of the Bible is taken up with God calling his people away from temptations and distractions, back to the truth, back to the solid ground of his word. To use Jesus' own example, Scripture is the solid rock in a world of shifting sand. And that's the main reason why I make sure that regularly through the year we will preach through entire books of the Bible. We need to listen to all of Scripture, including the difficult passages that might make us uncomfortable or difficult to understand. Because this is how God speaks to us through Scripture 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, teaching us, challenging us, and encouraging us. And we can be encouraged because no matter what persecutions or trials we might face, no matter what persecutions and trials the Thessalonians faced in Jesus, they and we can overcome because he has already won. It's not going to be easy, but the victory is not in doubt. In Jesus and in him alone, we are more than conquerors. Paul ends this section with a prayer for encouragement and strength, and that's where we're going to end this morning as well. I'd like to pray Paul's prayer for us now. So if you'd like to stand for a moment, please, and uh, we'll pause. And I'd like us all just to take a breath in and out and picture that verse, the Lord Jesus destroying evil with the breath of his mouth. Let's just take a breath in and out. Verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. Amen.